This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 24th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And Sean Spicer's innumeracy has reared its head again. He was asked in today's press conference about President Trump's claims that but for the votes of millions of illegals, he'd have won the popular election. The president does believe that. He has stated that before. I think he stated his concerns of voter fraud and, and people voting illegally during the campaign. And he continues to maintain that belief based on studies and evidence that people have presented to him. Beliefs. You can't fault a guy for his belief system. It's his faith. I believe the children of the future. Trump believes that children of Hondurans are stuffing ballot boxes. Totally unprovable. Then Sean Spicer was pressed again. And here's where the innumeracy reared its head. And I, I think there's been studies, there's one that came out of Pew in 2008 that showed 14% of, of people who have voted were non-citizens. There's other studies that have been presented to him. So there was no Pew study attached to 14%. But anyway, that original talking point is still all wrong. The study that Spicer thought he was referring to looked at a survey that counted 339 non-citizens who said they voted in 2008, 489 in 2010. From this small number, they extrapolated that the vote of illegals could be as high as 14%. Other researchers rebutted this 14 ways till Sunday. No one's been able to replicate the idea that 14% of votes are by illegal citizens. And an author of that original study said a couple things. One, we found low but non-zero levels of non-citizen participation in elections. And our results suggest that almost all elections in the U.S. are not determined by non-citizen participation, with occasional and very rare potential exceptions. He also said, on the right, there has been a tendency to misread our results as proof of massive voter fraud, which we don't think they are. Now, let me tell you why I'm going on and on about a point that I'm going to guess that you're convinced of, right? Until you tuned into the spiel today, you weren't thinking, wow, did millions of voters sway the election? Illegal voters? Okay, my interest is, can others, people who are not yet convinced or educated in this fact, become convinced or educated? For some people, the answer is no, never. They'll never get out of their silo. They don't want to. But there is a lot of evidence that the vast majority of people don't want to be deceived. And they can be swayed using inoculation theory. So what you do is you explain a plausible motivation for why one side would lie to you. I.e., you know, Donald Trump's ego can't take an actual loss. Or Donald Trump wants to manipulate the facts into giving himself a mandate that he doesn't really have. And once fair-minded people say, okay, I get that. I get that could be his motivation. Then you inoculate. And that's what I just tried to do. You say what the myth is, but because you frame it as a myth and because you make it a weak version of the myth by giving it context, you know, so the myth seems as a myth, not a possible fact, what you do is you inoculate the listener, the reader, the news consumer. Of course, that's not for you, just listener. It's for your open-minded friends who may be on the fence on this subject. You know, there are probably still seven or eight of them left. 
All right, let us now put down the needle of inoculation. Let's pick up Occam's razor for a second. Remember, Sean Spicer, bad with numbers. Here's who he said Donald Trump met with. The other day, he sat down with Martin Luther King Jr. I would call him a civil rights leader. His dad was the third. Well, I I think that that he has done, I mean, I think. Wait, didn't Martin Luther King Jr. die in Memphis? Oh, oh, maybe you heard the other reporter there try to clarify. The third. You You must have met with Martin Luther King the third. But three is a number, and it's difficult for those afflicted with a numeracy. On the show today, yeah, I got a little touch of the virus again. I'm not going to give you details, but what it does is it opens us up for a guest spiel. Listen to find out who. And today, 538 reported that higher rates of hate crimes are tied to income inequality. That's the one thing that predicts where a hate crime will happen. It's interesting. It's based on the widely reported increase in hate incidents after the election. But we wanted to dive into those numbers reported by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Because incidents aren't crimes, allegations aren't proof, and a spike can level out. So let's talk to the Southern Poverty Law Center and dissect the hate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So you remember the reports soon after the election, NBC hate on the rise after Trump's election, New York Times, hundreds of hate crimes reported since election, SPLC. But since then, what's happened? Soon after the election, Donald Trump on 60 Minutes was asked to denounce the hate crimes. He did, sort of, angrily. I am so saddened to hear that. And I say, stop it, if it, if it helps. I I will say this, and I'll say it right to the camera, stop it. But again, let's check in and let's check in on the methodology of how that organization that we named the SPLC collects its data. Joining me now is Heidi Byrick. She's the director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which tracks hate crimes. Hello, Heidi. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So we saw a lot of headlines from soon after the election. What's happened in the two months since? Well, there was just a a really intense outbreak of hate incidents across the country starting right the day after the election. And there were lots and lots of these incidents for about four weeks. And then they have begun to taper off. There have been very few hate incidents uh, recently. Our data shows that between November 9th and December 12th, there were over a thousand hate incidents across the country. And since then? Far fewer. It's literally dropped down to like one or two a day, maybe. I've been to your site. Uh, It clearly says reported to law enforcement first. It also says if you're an educator, uh, fill out this form. But how then, what are your standards for counting something as a hate crime? Sure. Well, first of all, let me be clear. We are collecting two kinds of data. 
hate incidents, which would never count as a hate crime. I mean, because we have freedom of speech in this country in the First Amendment, you can say really ugly things to somebody, whether they're racial, you know, racist or xenophobic, and it wouldn't let meet the level of a crime. So I characterize this as hate incidents included in there, of course, are things that would be hate crimes like assaults, violent attacks of various kinds, property destruction. So this number of incidents includes both the kind that are not crimes and the kind that are crimes. Now, that's a distinction that I get, but I think that the media misses this. And in fact, there are some sites like Breitbart who have a cottage industry of pushing back back against the idea of hate crimes. And I do have to say, when I go to them and they say things like, kids started a build the wall chant in a high school cafeteria, that's not a hate crime. That's just poor manners. And I agree with them. Now, I know you're not calling it a crime, but is there a danger of conflation is my question. I do think that, you know, we have to be careful and we've tried to be very careful to separate those two things apart, right? To make clear that these aren't all possible crimes and things that law enforcement would investigate. But when it comes to, you know, places like Breitbart, what I find a little troubling is they want to make light of the entire fact that any of this even happened, right? So they pick out instances that turned out later, for example, to be hoaxes or something like what you described in the school as a way to deny the fact that there was an outbreak of racial and xenophobic rage that happened across this country in the wake of Trump's win. Just because some of these incidents don't, ra- you know, raise to the level of a crime doesn't mean that they're not horrible. To be, you know, screamed at using uh, slurs on the street is a terrible thing to go through. So I find it very cynical that some very conservative sites have taken this tactic instead of saying what they should, which is any of this is bad and it shouldn't be happening. That's true. But as a member of the media, I want to have the best understanding of what's really going on in America. And I know a couple things. I think a criminologist will tell us that hate crimes do usually track, I'm talking about the crimes now, do usually track the overall crime rate. Uh, Has that been your observation? Well, there are some serious problems with the hate crimes data. And here I'm talking specifically about the FBI's annual hate crime statistics that they release. And the big problem with hate crimes is this. They are some of the most undercounted crime statistics that we have. In fact, the Department of Justice looking at survey data, not the FBI's data, which comes through police departments, the DOJ says we have about 260,000 hate crimes a year. The FBI's statistics are usually about 5,000 a year. So our data isn't even good enough to really tell us what is happening with hate crimes in the United States. The one thing we do know, because of this 260,000 figure, is that the dimensions of the problem are way, way bigger than any of us think. So when the FBI says that hate crimes increased 6% in 2005, the latest year for which it has the full figures, is there reason to suspect if the overall number is off that the tracking of the increase is also off? Well, it's hard to trust the data, period. I mean, it just is, and it's very unfortunate because given our legacy of racism in this country and our struggles for racial justice, it seems like it should be a public policy priority to know really what the level of hate crime is in the United States. You know, for us, we do look at the FBI's numbers to look at trends. It matters sort of if, you know, we have a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment in society and the number of attacks on Latinos goes up. I think it tells you 
you something, but it still has to stay within the context of the fact that these are just not good numbers. The data is not good, and we don't have a good handle on hate crime as a social problem in this country. By the way, does the SPLC break out which of the thousand or so are hate crimes and which are examples of harassment? Uh, we have it, we have anecdotal evidence to break that down, but in the way that we analyzed it in the rush after the election, we really were looking just at what kinds of people were attacked. So, for example, the largest chunk of these incidents had to do with anti-immigrant sentiment, then it was anti-black, then anti-Muslim. We did take a more detailed look at incidents that in, were in, where there was an invoking of Trump's name. And the interesting thing about those incidents is that they were largely um, anti-woman. In fact, that was 75% of those cases where Trump's name was invoked were attacks on women in some way. What we're doing now with pro Publica is we're trying to sort through the differences, which are incidents, which are hate crimes, how many can we verify, right? Because we want to get the data as solid as possible, but it's just been a very short uh, period of time and an inundation of information to be able to make the kind of analysis that you're pointing to, but that that is our plan. Okay, so right now you don't have the breakdown of which are crimes and which are harassment, but you hope, but you hope to. Absolutely. Okay. Now, as you note, I've seen you noted, there are always hoaxes. Um, it does, and this is anecdotal, but it does seem to me that a couple of the most widely reported incidents of hate crimes or harassment turned out to be hoaxes or, in fact, uh, instances where the person making the allegation was arrested. Um, I have this NBC article from a couple days after the election where your organization's name is in the headline, and it says, some incidents of hate crimes that NBC has confirmed independently. And the second one is a University of Michigan alert where a white male demanded a woman remove her, her hijab or he would set her on fire. Well, that was a hoax. That was widely reported. And then there was the New York subway attack uh, woman with a hijab hoax. Again, I said it was anecdotal, but have you noticed that a couple of the most widely reported ones turned out to have been debunked? I think you just picked out two of the most important. I think there was another one that looked like an anti-Muslim attack that turned out to be a hoax as well. But there were, there were definitely some hoaxes. There are always hoax crimes in any type of crime, right? And it's not just uh, hate crimes. We've had incidents going back, you know, over a decade of people who were involved in some sort of incident that they think they, you know, where they're the culprit or they're the perpetrator or they're in an embarrassing situation and they think they can get out of it by claiming they were a victim of a hate crime. It happens in other ways. But, right. you know, as I said earlier, the problem here is when people fixate on a few hoaxes to undermine the fact that all these other things have happened. And we have to, you know, the unfortunate thing is the hoaxes give the opportunity for someone to do that, right? And sort of undermine the idea of hate crimes. But we have to realize that these are, you know, very infrequent incidents. They do happen. There's no point in acting like they don't. But that still doesn't counter the fact that this trend, this wave of hate exploded after the election. Is there something to the fact that these got so much news because they were concocted? I mean, if you're going to make something up, you would probably go with something big and splashy and likely to get attention. And maybe it's very unfortunate for your cause, but that could be a dynamic at play. I think that's fair. I think that is part of what it what is going on here. I think actually the bigger driver here was basically Breitbart and people like Ann Coulter who wanted to act as though the election didn't result in these hate incidents. And they didn't want to have to take responsibility for that in the context of the campaign. And, you know, our president-elect 
also refused to acknowledge that this problem existed. So you point to the hoaxes to try to minimize the problem. And I think it's really unfortunate because I don't think it takes anything away from Trump's election to disavow this kind of activity in a bigger way than just saying stop it on 60 Minutes or having a reporter basically drag you to acknowledging that this is bad. There's also a category that that you count. And again, I'm in favor of the uh, accumulation of knowledge. But essentially, someone will spray paint, make America white again, or a slogan like that. And oftentimes, it comes out that it might not be necessarily a hoax. That's the motivation of the person doing it. They're making a point. Uh, In fact, a lot of sightings of Ku Klux Klan, by the way, the real Ku Klux Klan is out there, but there are a lot of instances where people don a robe or a hood to sort of make a point, and that could be coded as a hate crime. That's possible, but I will say that in the case of property defacement that you're talking about, if somebody says, make America white again, that's going to be a hate crime because that has a racial intent and you can, and defacing property falls under the hate crimes law. Now we've right. seen instances like that church in Mississippi, right? That had the Trump stuff spray painted on it. And the mm-hmm. motivation turned out to have nothing to do with hate. It really was a fake hate crime and it got a lot of media attention. Then of course, when it turned out to not be true, it got a lot of media attention. So in that case, it wouldn't fall as a hate crime, but the one that you described probably is. Okay, so there are two other things I want to get to. One is you had a very tangible, uh, good piece of advice. So I pointed to uh, how hard it is to be sure that all of these incidents or most of these incidents are real and you're working towards that. But there is a way to stop them and it comes from the top. And uh, George W. Bush uh, gave an example of this. Well, after 9-11, George W. Bush showed real leadership by going to a mosque and saying that Muslim Americans are Americans like the rest of us, and the violence, which included quite a few murders after 9-11 of people who appeared to be Muslim, right, by people upset about the attacks, he denounced that kind of hate violence. And what we saw was, even though there was an outbreak of anti-Muslim Sikh and other violence right after the attacks, it pretty much came to a halt. And Trump could have done the same thing. It would have been a very easy thing to stop. And uh, it's unfortunate that he didn't decide to show the kind of leadership that Bush did. And what's interesting to me is even though I've questioned all the statistics, you saw a before and you saw an after. You saw a cause and effect. So it doesn't matter. Maybe some of these crimes were hoaxes. Maybe some were overreported. We don't have an exact number. But after Bush went to the mosque and sort of created a social norm, you saw a real effect. And that could happen now if uh, Donald Trump decided to take such attack. That's right. And I wish he would because, you know, people suffer when these things happen. I mean, one thing about hate crimes that often isn't discussed is, you know, when you're attacked for your religion, say you're Jewish or for your race, often what happens is that entire community then becomes fearful. There's been a lot of reporting in the media about how Muslims writ large here in America are really scared right now. And by saying no to the hate and no to these kinds of incidents and standing up against them, it would you know provide a sense of calm and safety to the communities here in the United States who didn't get treated that well by uh, Trump's campaign. And he's now going to be the president of the United States. Those are all his fellow Americans. And, you know, we should expect better out of him. When I work for NPR, I covered this story about uh, an outbreak, a supposed outbreak of uh, noose incidents. And there seems to be, there seemed to be one or two that was bonaf- that were bonafide. But then afterwards, uh, it was a combination of maybe a hoax, maybe every 
string in a tree was seen as a noose, like a community theater had a noose as a prop and that was seen as a hate crime. You know, there was this confirmation bias, as I think what a psychologist would call it, that there are some actual incidents and then we see things that were benign or that would always be there, like swastika graffiti is not ever going away entirely. So have you seen any of that with uh, this rash of ha- hate crimes right after the election and the ones that have happened in the last few months? Well, you're absolutely right about noose incidents. I've you know experienced that myself here where people think sort of a sign of a lynching or something comes up and it, it can do exactly what you're saying. I would imagine that a share of the incidents that we have collected, right, will eventually turn out to be based on on nothing or a bit of a hysteria you know, fueled by the fear people felt after the election. I mean, I think that's a fair point. And I'm sure that as we dig in the data, that's exactly what we're going to find out. I still think when all is said and done, that we will find that a lot of this stuff was substantiated. But it remains to be seen, right? It remains to be seen. Heidi Byrick is the director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. She crunches the numbers on hate crimes. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thanks for having me. Hello, I'm Mary Wilson, GIST producer. I'm Chris Berube, other GIST producer. And Mike is out today. He could not do a spiel. That's okay. We're here to talk about a thin-skinned reality TV star businessman turned populist political figure. Say it with me, Mary. Kevin O'Leary. Okay, Kevin O'Leary. That's not where I was going. So, Mary, as you probably know, I'm Canadian. Mike brings it up every episode, including episodes I'm not here to produce. And last week... A man named Kevin O'Leary shook up Canadian politics. He's running for leadership of the Conservative Party. If he wins, he will become the official leader of the opposition, uh, the main foil to Justin Trudeau. And on the surface, in a lot of ways, it feels like Kevin O'Leary has kind of modeled his life after Donald Trump. He's also a businessman who has loud opinions. He lends his name to lots of different products, for example. Get an Aluma Bowl. It's a toilet bowl nightlight that lets you see when you tinkle. Alumabol fits any toilet. It's motion activated and sets to eight different colors or cycles. By the way, in that ad, O'Leary's head is literally coming out of a toilet bowl. <laughs> okay, Chris, I know you're a proud Canadian, but this is an American podcast, usually hosted by American Mike Pesca with an American spiel. Mary, I know you're America first, but... I think the world needs to know about this. Don't tar me with that label. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Mike was talking about the Gambia on Inauguration Day, for example. He did talk about the Gambia. That's true. Anyway, American audiences, I think, know Kevin O'Leary a little bit already. He's the star of the reality show Shark Tank, where inventors and generally weird people go before this dais of venture capitalists, and they pitch some of their brilliant business ideas. And usually, their dreams are crushed. Look, I love your shtick and your smiling and all that stuff, but you're making me a little crazy with this valuation because there's nothing proprietary about your cookies. I can hire a granny, put on a yellow outfit, smile like you do, and have her bake these in an oven. You can't. Yes, you I can. Cannot hire yes, a I can, Blondie. No, so Kevin O'Leary is kind of famous here in the States, but in Canada, he's even more famous. He's pretty much a household name. For a long time, he was everywhere on the CBC. I used to work at the CBC. That's the public broadcaster. And he starred on a different reality show on the CBC called Dragon's Den. 
I will pay you to stay away from any business that I've invested in. And if you come near it, I'll set that teddy bear on fire. That sounds really similar to Shark Tank. Actually, it is pretty much the same show. The CBC gave Kevin O'Leary this really big platform. Uh, He also hosted a crossfire-type show called the Lang O'Leary Exchange on the uh, CBC's news network. And that show, in a way, it's kind of like Trump's Twitter feed. It's the place where Kevin O'Leary would say all of these big, flamboyant, kind of id-driven things. He used to say, for example, that he wanted to ban unions. There's this one time he actually defended global poverty. The combined wealth, this is according to Oxfam, of the world's 85 richest people is equal to the three and a half billion poorest people. It's fantastic. And this is a great thing because it inspires everybody, gets the motivation to look up to the 1% and say, I want to become one of those people. I'm going to fight hard to get up to the top. This is fantastic news. And of course, I applaud it. What can be wrong with this? Really? So he actually walked that statement back later on, saying that he was just trying to be provocative. But he did also say this about Occupy Wall Street. And I have to say, this sounds very Trump-like. So what what exactly is everybody complaining about? And is to also give me a sense of how much momentum this movement has, because it looks pretty nothing burger so far. Just a few guys, guitars, nobody knows what they want. They can't even name the names of the firms that they're protesting against. Very weak, low budget. So despite all this, despite this mountain of evidence, Kevin O'Leary insists he is not the Canadian Donald Trump. I get that comparison every day. Here's a fact. I'm actually born from Lebanese and Irish immigrants. If there were walls in Canada, I wouldn't exist. It's that simple. Okay, so that's Kevin O'Leary. He could come to run the Conservative Party. And I'm going to assume he has some sort of sober-minded, mainstream, non-Trumpian competition. So the other person running, grabbing most of the headlines right now, is a woman named Kelly Leach. She's a former surgeon. She was a cabinet minister in the last conservative government. And to be honest, she also kind of sounds like Trump, but for different reasons. So during the 2015 election, Kelly Leach was the public face of a conservative proposal to set up a tip line where people could report on their neighbors. So that citizens and victims can call with information about incidents of barbaric cultural practices here in Canada. What are barbaric cultural practices? So in her definition, it was things like forced marriages, uh, honor killings, for example. Wouldn't you call 911 for that? Well, that's the thing, exactly. The proposal wasn't very popular. A lot of people called it a dog whistle, and conservatives ended up losing the election. Leach actually ended up apologizing for her role in the whole thing. If I could go back in time, which I can't, I would change things. I would not have made that announcement that day. Okay, so she regrets it. Well, actually, later on, she said the part she regretted was the rollout. And now she says the tip line was a good idea. Stick to your guns. Right, it's Canada, fewer guns. That's true. One-tenth as many per capita as they have here in the U.S. But, okay, don't distract me. I want to talk about the Canadian conservative political party some more. Okay, go. So Kelly Leach, she's in this race. And now her main proposal is she wants every immigrant coming into the country to take something called a Canadian values test, and she wants new immigrants to pay for it. That doesn't sound sinister at all. So right now we've got Kevin O'Leary, we've got Kelly Leach, and there are 12 other candidates. So we are at the pre-Iowa caucus stage of the game here. Right, exactly. So O'Leary and Leach are grabbing all the headlines, and they seem to be polling fairly well, but... 
we're still at this early stage of the campaign where the field hasn't thinned out yet. There are still these debates with like 14 people on stage. But soon there's going to be a smaller number and the candidates are actually going to like mix it up a bit more. And then we'll see who the strong candidates actually are. Nobody is seriously doing any name calling yet, right? Nobody is saying like somebody else's dad killed JFK. That is true. However, I mean, you heard Kevin O'Leary. I could see him saying something like Kelly Leach's dad started French Canadian separatism or something like that. Let's not start that rumor. You're right. Let's not start that rumor that Kelly Leach's dad started French Canadian separatism. That would be a terrible rumor to have out in the public. Right, Mary? Yes, absolutely. Which rumor am I talking about? <laughs> Leach's dad started French, French Canadian, Canadian separatism. separatism.com. <laughs> this has been Canadian Corner. <laughs> Sorry, it's Mike. Branded. Come back soon. <laughs> Get well. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson, an American. Just producer Chris Berube, a Canadian. But Mary would be a Canadian were it not for 3 million illegal yards between the U.S. and the Maryland border. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He would have a lustrous full mane of hair were it not for 100,000 illegal follicles who were suppressed by razor and testosterone. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply, a very successful podcast network, but he would be Ira Glass if it were not for 3 million illegal downloads of cereal, and also, like Steve and I, those follicles. The gist. We enjoyed the 1986 Jeff Bridges movie, 8 Million Ways to Die, but prefer the shorter version, 5 Million Ways to Die, without those 3 million illegal ways to die. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.